All right. Hello, and welcome to the Yet Another Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. And with me today, I'm excited to have Andrew Friedman. Andrew is a Managing Director at Hedgeye. Andrew, how's it going? Going well. Thanks for having me on. Great. Hey, let me start this podcast the way I do every podcast. First, a quick disclaimer. Andrew and I are going to talk about a lot of stocks today. So everyone should just remember, nothing on this podcast is investing advice. Everyone should do their own work, do their own diligence. And then second, with a pitch for you, my guest, you know, I love to talk about the media space, the telecom space, all this. And whenever I do and I get something wrong, I'll, you know, there's just trolls everywhere saying, you got this wrong. You're so dumb. I knew it all along. But there's there are very few people who can point to, hey, I was writing in real time about this. And Andrew's one of them. When I came out and said I was long Altice, a couple months later, people will come back. And Andrew said, look, here was my thesis on Altice, why it was a bad idea, which it really was a bad idea at the time. But uh, look, I, I love the way you're looking at the world. I, I've reviewed your coverage list. And I know the way you're looking at the world is it's really working today. So uh, I'm excited to go through all of TMT and have this conversation. So that all out the way, TMT is a broad space. Let's uh, let's talk about maybe we can talk about what you're seeing right now or just how you're kind of view the world in general. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I, I think just to kind of kick things off, it's probably helpful to just you know tell folks how I think about the world, our process, because it's a little bit different. Uh, so first, you know, Hedgeye, we're an independent research firm, um, so we don't do any asset management. So when we say we're long, short this, it's a research recommendation, and we have various levels of conviction on on our ideas at any given time. Um, but in terms of the process and how I come up with ideas, it's it's very uh, dynamic, right? So we think across multiple durations. Uh, you know, we get criticized as being too short term, which I understand. Um, but it's also important, I think, to really understand your catalysts and how fundamentals are trending in the very short term. And that's really key to the process, uh, which is also very data driven. So we use a lot of data inputs to kind of understand how the company's fundamentals are trending. Uh, you, know, you never get real time, right? But if I can kind of get a sense of how the business is doing intra-quarter using some third-party data set or some you know, primary research efforts, uh, that's super helpful uh, in trying to you know, understand you know, when we should you know, crank up or crank down our levels of conviction on, on a specific name. And you know, we, we'll get stuff wrong just like everybody else. Um, but then in the long term, you know, we have, uh, you know, at least for me, a very you know, thematic process, right? So the communication services space, which I've deemed everything internet, media, cable, telecom, is very rich with very long-term secular trends that are investable. Um, and if you can get those right, and you can also kind of navigate um, the cyclicality and the ebbs and flows within those long-term secular trends, I think you know you can come out with a process on the long short side that can create a lot of value. And I guess the other thing to just mention here is that you know the way I think about the world is through a long short framework. Um, so I think a lot about relative value, what's going to work relative to this. Um, and so you know it's not necessarily an absolute value, right? So when I look at my ideas on the long and short side, it's like okay, we're long Twitter. It's been absolutely a disaster and very painful of late, uh, and we can get into that if, if you want. Oh, but on, I, I want to talk Twitter but, for sure. But on, the, but on the other side of that, right, we've had a very negative view of digital advertising, uh, just given the comp dynamics, IDFA deprecation, data privacy issues, the list goes on and on, which you know gave us a lot of conviction and helped us time really well, our shorts on Pinterest and Snapchat, which are two of our top shorts at the moment, that we got right into earnings against our Twitter long, right? So, you know, we're not actively managing money and, you know, obviously being able to manage position sizing um, and managing those kind of gross to net exposures is, is very challenging. And so, um, but in that sense, you know, that's how we at least communicate our ideas. It's very rate of change focused, but at the same time, we also build models and I pay attention a lot to like the key drivers of the businesses and how I think the fundamentals are trending both in the short and long term. So that being said, if I kind of talk out of both sides of my mouth or, you know, I talk across durations, that's probably, you know, that hopefully that helps kind of frame things up. That that makes total sense. Hey, let me start with something that, that you mentioned there. Uh, you know, and one of the things I, I like is, you know, most of the time when you have a sell side analyst, their list is, you know, if they cover 20 companies, it's 17 buys, two neutrals, and maybe one sell. But I, I mean, you your sells and longs are actually pretty pretty balanced. I, I, I'm looking at right now, it's like 15 longs and probably 12 yeah, shorts. So, Although I, I will stop you short, Andrew. The fact that you're calling me a sell side analyst hurts me a little bit. I know that's technically what it is. I know. But like in terms of how I feel and think, I just, I you know, usually we're poking holes at the sell side because we are independent, right? And so- I don't get paid off of management conferences. I don't get paid off of saying great quarter guys. 
you know, I don't, uh, we don't have any banking or trading, right? So in the truest sense, I'm just trying to, you know, do buy side quality research and be right at the end of the day. But so, so that. <laughs> makes so everybody wants to be unique, right? But let yeah. me start. You, you mentioned long Twitter, short Snap, and Pinterest, and I just thought that was an interesting combo because, you know, most people I know who are bullish Twitter, Spotify, Facebook, which I Roku, which I know you are, I think tend to be bullish, especially Snap and Pinterest. And now I, I don't follow Snap and Pinterest super closely, but I, sure. I'm just in general they tend to be bullish. On this, so what about Snap and Pinterest in particular? Uh, kind of drives you to look at those as shorts. Yeah, so I mean, the timing was interesting, right? And a lot of it's looking at what the drivers of the business were and why they worked so well for so long. Um, and really, it came down to a couple things, right? Um, they benefited uh, disproportionately coming out of the pandemic last year. So um, while the world uh, was going through a very difficult time. With, there was civil unrest. We all know that so we don't have to recap 2020, but it was really a bad environment for brand advertising. Um, yep. and really resulted in a lot of large brands and and uh, agencies to shift their uh, shift their ad spend to other platforms. So, and in, given how large the digital advertising market is, right? If you just get, pick up 50 basis points of market share, it's incredibly yep. increased to your growth rates. And so that resulted in you know a massive positive revision cycle a huge acceleration in growth uh, for Pinterest and Snapchat coming out of the pandemic, um, which lasted about through, you know, this, you know, the second quarter of this year. And as we were kind of going into the back half, um, you know, valuations were incredibly stretched. We were just coming off this massive positive revision cycle at the same time growth was going to slow. And we thought that a lot of these, you know, tailwinds of these businesses were going to revert um, and that people were mistaking, you know, like basically extrapolating all this positive growth into perpetuity. In the case of Snapchat, you're sitting there looking at, you know, consistent 100 basis point market share gains a year, um, 60%, you know, three-year kegger in gross profit, uh, where we thought that, you know, this was maybe more of a temporary boost. And the company just earlier in the year came out and said, look, we think we can grow 50% a year forever. And they did that right at the top, right? Right as their business was absolutely the best it was going to be. And so we saw effectively mean reversion, right? But you know, is a there's a good opportunity to you know to peg the short, um, and I think we timed it pretty well ultimately. Um, and the same thing with Pinterest. Obviously, they've been seeing very uh, weak engagement trends, so they're a little bit more nuanced, right? Because it's not really a social platform; it's more of a search platform. It's yep, or it's more of a content platform, and so they benefited a lot, um, you know, in COVID from the stay-at-home trends and, and things of that nature. Um, and when we were coming into the year, you know, we were concerned that again, we would see a lot of those positive trends reverse. It's a leading indicator, right? So search is intent for Pinterest. It's, it is very top of the funnel in terms of user behavior. You know, you're talking about weddings and things of that nature that are, are planned events. Um, and during COVID, a lot of those things got put on hold. And as a result, um, you saw people's engagement, the time spent with the platform go from like 12 months up to 18 months. And that has, in a normalized environment, has since reversed. And then you also just have the general, you know, reopening trade um, that's been occurring, uh, which has resulted in them losing a lot of the users that they've had, which isn't good for engagement trends, it's not good for monetization, time spent in the app has gone down. Um, and we've been tracking a lot of the data there fairly closely to monitor those trends and help us, you know, build conviction. And, you know, looking in Q4, they just guided to the slowest growth rate out of the group. Um, I know, and I'll stop after this comment, but I know long-term, a lot of people look at Pinterest and Snapchat and they say, look, these are uh, great platforms at scale. Direct response advertising is the fastest growing part of the market. And while that is the case, you know, there are a lot of challenges that these businesses are going to be facing specifically currently and at least through the next six months, which is why we're seeing the multiples come back in. Um, and, you know, uh, and we're seeing this across all pandemic, quote, pandemic winners, right? It's just, it's all going back to where it was before. Now, just on Pinterest in particular, you know, it strikes me because I, I kind of threw it on my list to look at and haven't gotten fully around to it. But, you know, there was the rumor Microsoft offered to buy him for 80 over the summer. There was the mm -hmm. rumor, I, I don't even think this was a rumor, PayPal, PayPal, PayPal yeah. put out a press release that said PayPal offered 70 and PayPal's shareholders kind of revolted and PayPal stepped away. But, mm -hmm. you know, this stock, I think it's like 40 as we speak. Is that right? I, I don't I have think it. It's, 
I think it's down more. I think it's 35 down 6%. Ooh, just, just go, go, go and street going down, man. Yeah. When I look at a stock at 35, where less than two months ago, there was a strategic who was talking about paying 70 for it. I look at that and, you know, Microsoft and Microsoft and PayPal are two of the world's biggest companies. And both of them looked at Pinterest and saw something strategic where they were rumored within the past year to pay a huge premium to the current price. I look at that and say, oh, that seems kind of scary as a short. Are are Mm. you not concerned about kind of the Pinterest strategic interest, M&A target, all all that kind of circle? You go back to like October. Well, first of all, when that first, when that Microsoft news came, it actually made me more bearish, right? Because at the time it was, um, it wasn't necessarily premium to the stock. And so then when you have that floated out as a price, you're like, all right, my upside's capped. You know, if I think the business- That's a great point. Yeah, that's a great point. So that's one thing. The second thing is, yeah, it's super scary because I mean, you know, we, so we have, we communicate ideas and you probably see this, Andrew, on our position monitor, we have our active longs and then our bench names. And the active longs are ones that, you know, we have more conviction at the moment. We think, you know, that they're basically in play, right? And the bench is more of longer term thematic. Uh, We may have not gone all the way through the investment process. So, when we had so we had Pinterest on on the short bench, um, you know, going into uh, earnings, and we had the PayPal news, and yeah, it was terrifying. Like it was awful, right? It's a, it's a, a squeeze. The stock went from fifty to like sixty three, um, and then you know that kind of it turned out to be nothing burger. Um, and then we added it back on as, a, as an active short because we saw the business deteriorating. Look, I, I think what it comes down to is. When that deal, when the Microsoft bid came out, what was the business doing, right? They were just coming off of a breakneck year. The fundamentals still looked really good. Um, Fast forward to the potential PayPal rumor. It was lower than the Microsoft bid rumor, right? The business fundamentals were getting worse. And so the business, the fundamentals continue to slow, right? And so does it make me concerned? Yes. But if you're a potential strategic here, is there a sense of urgency to buy Pinterest um, if you think you could potentially get a better price for it, you know, I'm not privy to those conversations, right? Um, I don't think most are. Um, but you know, if the business is at 35 today, you know, maybe you can get it at $50, right? It would still be a big premium. Um, and the strategic value is there in the sense that, you know, having, uh, you know, commerce conversions on platform in a world where I, you have, you know, limited visibility with IDFA deprecation, to integrate payments to better track, uh, you know, conversions for shopping, it makes a ton of sense. I just don't know if Pinterest is the right platform, right? Because they don't have well, they have over well, they have a lot of MAUs. The uh, the actual engagement levels of those MAUs is, is pretty low, and it hasn't really shown an ability to scale outside its core demo of females which is a good demo. It's an attractive demo. Don't get me wrong. Hey, there are um, a lot of females out there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they monetize really well, right. For shopping. Um, but still like, I don't really know if, if Pinterest is really the right horse in that sense, if you're PayPal or, or, or some of these other platforms. So that's kind of been my sense. And yeah, I mean, m is scary, um, but you know, it's always a risk, right? Like I remember when we first went short Altice in this like December of 19, and the feedback always was like, you know, Charter's going to buy it, right? Like, or Draw, he's just going to come in and take this thing private. I mean, Dexter at a cocktail party uh, with our director of research after we went short called our report cute and said that he'll just go and buy back all the stock. Yeah. Right. Which he proceeded yeah. to try to do. Um, but but the point is, it's you know, in my process, like I try not to really be too concerned with M&A. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to get blown up on it at some point. <laughs> with some yeah. Well, we don't have to talk about Altice, but I just yeah. I find it funny. I, I mean, look, you put this all in your short report, uh, but, you know, Altice in 2018, 2019, they definitely had an arrogance to him. Right. Like you said, he called his report short. Yeah. Every conference they went to, they'd say, hey, our free cash flow yield to equity is 10 percent and our debt mm-hmm. costs us you know, 3% after tax, we're going to take advantage of that all day long. We're going to buy back shares. They called Charter and Comcast stupid for how they were launching their mobile business. And Altice was like, the Altice way, we're going to have the best mobile business, can be cheaper, more profitable, all this. And, you know, they they cut costs like crazy. And this year, stock way down. It's my biggest loser by far. And they're out here, everything's gone, right? No more share buybacks. They're reinvesting in the business and paying yeah. down debt despite the stock being 50% lower than where they were hammering the share count, uh, Altice Way is dead. 
They're reinvesting into the business. The mobile plan scrap. They're they're redoing all yeah. like it, it just shows an arrogance to them. But anyway, let's go back to telecom. Or you can talk about Altice. If no, you want yeah, to, no, but- I didn't want to, I, I only brought Altice up because you asked the MA question, right? And yeah. I thought it was a good example of like how I think about MA on from, from the short side. So we yeah, we don't have to get about that. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. I mean, if you notice we're not short Altice at all, like it's nowhere on the list right now, right? Because for, for the reasons that you mentioned. So uh well let's talk. Just one more in the tech space, Twitter. You know, I, I've been a long-time Twitter bill. Fortunately, don't have a position currently, but uh, Elliot Turner came on right at, Elliot Turner came on the podcast right after they kicked uh, Trump off and we talked about it. And, you know, me, like like many bulls, I look at Twitter, and I see this platform where I create tons of value. You and I connected on Twitter, right? Like all this value is creating, it drives every news story. They literally, you know, not to rehash the story, but they kicked Donald Trump off and Donald Trump's microphone is literally taken away. Without Twitter, you don't have a microphone, you know? So I look at this and I see what I think is maybe the most powerful platform in the world and it's trading for $40 billion on the open market. I I haven't looked at the EV since the huge stock price drop in the past couple of years, but, you know, they, they just... They can't figure out monetization. Every time it seems like they're getting something going, they kick themselves in the foot. And, you know, the Bulls have always said they just redid their tech stack. Things are accelerating. It just doesn't feel like it. So what's going on with Twitter? Why can't they figure out this monetization? Why is why does the stock suck so much? I mean, I think the stock sucks so much. Well, for, there's a couple of re- there's a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, um, everyone wants to be long performance, direct response yep. advertising, right? Uh, Twitter is 85% brand advertising. It's not really a growth market. It's highly cyclical. Uh, the return on ad spend isn't necessarily extremely high, right? But that's because, but it speaks to the fact that Twitter is an amazing awareness tool, right? Um, it's a great, it's a, it's broadcast. It's, it's phenomenal in that respect. Um, and because of that, you just don't inherently get a large multiple for brand advertising businesses because it's, it's slower. Um, now that's why they're moving from eight, trying to get to from 85 brands to 50, 50 direct response. If they can successfully grow that business, um, then, you know, you can start to see the multiple re-rate and their growth rate to be more durable over time. Um, so there's that aspect of it, which I think is an overhang. The other thing too, is look, there's just so much scar tissue here. Um, I think it's just been such a chronic disappointment. The Twitter long thesis isn't necessarily new. It's been talked about in many different ways. Um, and it just hasn't worked. And right. So investors just become tired at that point, right? The opportunity cost of being a Twitter bull or being long Twitter is just way too high. And so let me just be long Facebook, which has been a better idea, right? Um, it's on the long side. Um, but again, you look at Twitter and you just can't help, but see the optionality in the business, all these levers that they could potentially pull to create shareholder value. And, on the one hand, um, if you look at what they've been doing, I think they this is not the same Twitter that it was three years ago. Um, they have been executing against their plan. They've been, you know, product development velocity has more than doubled. Uh, if you look at their market share of digital advertising dollars compared to peers, it's stabilized and it's starting to turn. Brand advertising has snapped back. They've gotten their um, maps Map 2.0 back online for mobile um, app. Uh, advertisers, that's growing quickly. And so if you just look at what they're doing, it's they're executing, right? And actually the fundamentals of the business uh, in terms of revenue and, and users have have come in a little bit come in a little bit better than even I was anticipating coming into the year, which is the exact opposite of like looking at like a Pinterest or a Snapchat like in the most recent quarters uh, where they've where they've disappointed. Um, but nonetheless, right, we're seeing a slowdown across digital advertising, um, tough comps, and the whole group is re-rating lower, right? And so you're going to have that issue where Twitter's relative valuation is going to be tracking peers. And so if, you know, Snap's going to go from 20 times sales to 10 times sales and Pinterest is going to go from 15 times sales to seven times sales, right, it, you're not going to see um, Twitter's multiple or valuation stay constant relative to that. So I think... That's a big part of the issue that we're seeing recently. Um, And frankly, um, you know, it's also no, I mean, obviously no one believes their MDAO guidance. I think they're, they, you know, it's, it's mathematically, if you just look at the numbers, it's very difficult to, to just look at the past and say, can they get it going forward? That being said, I think, you know, there are levers that they have at their disposal to, to get to their, hit that number ultimately. 
um, whether it's some converting some products that currently don't have exposure to advertising to ones that do. Um, and then you also have to think about um, all this product, all the investment that they're making in use cases like spaces, uh, communities, super follows that maybe are not necessarily big monetization drivers directly, but what they do is they have the effect of driving higher engagement and increasing yep. MDAO conversion, which is incredibly important. And the last thing I'll just say there is I think people are way too, like they look at the very short term and they don't realize that, I mean, coming off of last year's political cycle and the engagement trends that we saw, the fact that they're actually growing users, you're, you know, still in 2021 is actually pretty impressive. So we'll see. Um, we'll see how it ultimately plays out. But yeah, it's definitely been it's been the pain trade. It's been disappointing. What I, obviously this week, Jack steps down, resigns, fired, whatever you want to call it. They replace him with an internal candidate. Just quickly, what, what were your thoughts on the CEO switch? Um, I think that uh, you know, like most, um, the view I thought maybe doing an external CEO search and bringing somebody fresh in would probably be better. Um, but at the same time, if you think about that, if you were to bring in a brand name CEO, they're going to want to put their stamp on the organization, right? And they've already pivoted this organization in a strategic direction, you know, 18 months ago. And yeah. so to all of a sudden take it in a completely different direction, right, would be very disruptive in and of itself. Um, and then you also have to think about, um, yeah, I mean, and then you just have to think about just how long it would actually take an outsider CEO to acclimate to the culture and really understand uh, what, what's going on and add value, if at all. And so I think that in that framework, you know, elevating Prague to the role that he's in now makes sense. And frankly, the other thing, too, that we have to keep in mind here is like what the strategic options are, you know, and if this company is going to be taken private, either private equity or strategic you know, are you going to bring in a brand name CEO who's going to make, who's going to want to be here for five to seven years if really the, the name of the game here is just, you know, who cares? We, they may not even hit, it may not even matter what their 2023 targets are, right? Yeah. They could just be like, you know, what they may believe them, they may not, I don't know. But if they have plans on taking the company private, it's not going to matter. It, the, the taking the company private is an interesting thought because, you know, they they loosely fit into just about everyone as a strategic player now. Google, Facebook, you know, regulatorily, there's no chance they acquire them. But Iger's book, he says we we had a deal to buy Twitter, and I Thank called you. it off like a couple hours before, if I'm remembering, a couple hours before we were about to sign it, if I remember that correctly, because yep. he didn't like what a toxic pool it was. But you know, every media company Twitter would make sense for. Twitter and Spotify could make sense. Twitter and Netflix, if you really stretch, could kind of make sense. Like you, you could basically see Twitter as a, it's strategic to just about everyone. It's interesting. I haven't heard a lot of buzz around that. And then on the private equity side, you know, this is a famous thing, but Twitter spends a billion dollars on R&D and what the fudge are they spending a billion dollars in R&D on? You know, like the, yeah. the site hasn't improved in years. Uh Interesting what you said about bringing a new CEO in, because that was kind of my only concern. I, I thought Jack did fine, but I, I thought they needed a full-time CEO for a company this important. And my only concern with uh, Jack leaving right now was, you know, we're supposed to be on the accelerating ramp, right? Like they paid off all their technical debt. They've got all their ad targeting stuff where they supposedly want it to be. Month Active users are supposed to be ramping. Revenue supposed to be ramping. We're supposed to be ramping up and you switch CEOs right as the ramp up ha happens. That's always a little concerning. Yeah. I mean, I guess my only thought on that is, look, Jack is an, an incredible barrier to attracting investor capital. Yep. And love him or hate him, you know, he needs to, I think, and any way to get the stock higher is to, he needs to go. Um, and I think that this transition plan has probably been in the works for a very, uh, for a long time here. Um, and also, again, if you have plans on selling the company in some way, shape or form, Right. If that's the, ultimately the path we're on, you know, Jack doesn't need to, to really to be there anymore. Um, if anything, it makes it worse. And he's also giving up his board seat uh, next year. So, yeah, I, saw, um, I thought that was I thought that was interesting having Jack, the founder, give up a board seat so quickly. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. So anyway, but that's that's just, you know, my two cents on it. I mean, I think it's uh, I hear I, 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 I think what your your perspective makes a lot of sense, too. I just um, 
you know, I, I just don't know if Jack is really going to be the one um, who wants to see this through, who's going to carry the torch for this next wave of growth. Obviously, it's not the case, right? Because that's what he said, and that's why he resigned. But, um, you know, I think that it's probably for the best interest of shareholders. Um, and whether or not the next stage of value creation for Twitter is going to accrue to public equity holders today, or maybe in the hands of private equity, I don't really know. Um, but I can see multiple paths going forward. But yeah, it's been, Twitter's been, you know, very tough. And the narrative shifts have been really difficult to manage because people got way too excited about some of their subscription initiatives around super follows. And there's a lot of hype and excitement because all their power users see how much, who are also investors, see the value in the platform. Um, but ultimately, I think what it comes down to is just like, how do you get revenue to grow faster? You got to get into direct response advertising. It's, it's really that simple. So what they're doing in shopping is interesting currently. Um, business profiles, they need to get more SMBs on platform. Um, so, and also too, the, and this is the last thing I'll mention on Twitter, uh, is like, let's just be real, right? Like imagine managing this, this organization, like put yourself in the operator's seat. It doesn't, it, change doesn't happen overnight. Yep. It takes a long time to, you know, turn a ship the size of Twitter, right? And I know investors just want to get paid tomorrow and they want to see change immediately, but that's the reality is that doesn't always happen, especially for turnarounds. So we'll yeah. see how this ultimately works in their favor or against them. Yeah, I, I just, when I look at the platform, I, I was messaging Elliot about this the other day. I, I don't think he responded, but this is a little hot thing. But, uh, you know, when I engage with companies, I, I tweeted this a couple months ago. I was calling Delta. Uh, my I had a COVID exposure. Had to quarantine. Had to cancel. Uh, had to cancel flight because you know you had a COVID exposure. Calling Delta, trying to cancel my flight day of. Wait time on the phone is four hours. I, I tweeted about. It. I was like, hey, I don't know. Like it's three hours to JFK until my flight. I don't know if I'm going to be able to cancel this before they actually pick up the phone. Tweeted out. Delta representative DMs me ten seconds later everything's taken care of over Twitter DMs. And that's pretty much how I engage with most brands now, right? I slide into their Twitter support. Fund. I just message them on Twitter and say, hey, can you help me? And I don't believe Twitter makes a dime off of all of the support, support functions. And I've always wondered, like, it just seems like that alone, A, it shows the strategic value of Twitter, how much capture, and it just feels like there's a lot of value out there that they could take in different ways that they're they're yeah. really not getting paid for. So I have my own story, which I'll share in a second. But I think the fact is that Twitter is such a powerful organic marketing tool, right? Um, and organic marketing is the best kind of marketing. It's the most effective, it's the cheapest. Um, and because it's so good, uh, it makes it less effective to actually want to pay and monetize if the organic is so strong, right? So yep. if you have a great following, you know those are the people that are likely going to, if you're looking to monetize your audience, those are the ones that are a high probability and so you can do lookalike audiences. You can do a lot of things on the promoted, on the you know uh, promoted uh, advertising side to try to grow your audience for sure. Um, but the fact is that it is such a great organic marketing tool that it actually almost works against them in some in some ways. Um, and then my own story was like this was like two months ago or a month ago. I switched to T-Mobile and I had a software upgrade and it and it didn't work. And I went to the store to try to fix it. Um, there was some issue with the com computer i was i waited like 36 hours i went back it was a friday they said they couldn't help me i was supposed to go on a business trip that monday i need my phone um and then they were like too bad you know it's not going to work i tried to <laughs> support i literally got on twitter and i just i tweeted at john freer uh who's their head of the consumer organization and he's in my dm like 15 minutes later, I got like the chief operations office, uh, the COO for the Northeast division calling my cell phone and I have a new device in my hand within 45 minutes. Yep. Um, it's yeah. the, like the power of the platform is phenomenal. Now, someone has told me they were like, look, you know, you guys have more than 10,000 followers, which doesn't make us gods among Twitter users, but it puts us <laughs> well above average. Right. Yeah. And they're saying, hey, I think the companies on Twitter do know if it's somebody who tweets at you on Twitter, they're much more likely to, you know, engage really heavily on Twitter. So if you don't treat them right, they're going to be spreading vitriol. And, you know, even if it's a guy with 10 followers, it can go, it can go viral very oh, quickly. And if it's a guy with 10,000 followers, it can go viral very quickly. Oh yeah. The cost, right. The cost yeah. of having somebody with any followers are like, you know, 
uh, you know, the net classic like net promoter score, right? Like your detractors, like negativity and, you know, detractors are amplified, right? It's just like in real life, right? When something bad happens to you, it feels a lot worse a lot of the times than when something good happens, right? Yep. Loss aversion in, fi- in investing, like, and the same thing can be applied when it comes to marketing in that, you know, you want to neutralize, right? Because the, you have that complaint, right? But then if you can actually take that complaint and turn it into a positive outcome by fixing it, and then they promote that outcome, that's actually worth like 3x, right? Than any other type of organic promotion or any type of other positive experience that you would get, because it shows that you're committed to fixing problems that you care about your customer. So in that sense, you know, you're spot on. Yeah, no, I no, 100% agree. I just thought it was interesting because my worry with Twitter and my worry with a lot of media companies is if you love them, right, you're going to see all the bull cases. You're going to see all the optionality. It can be hard. And when someone said, hey, you, you know, I worry with Twitter. I've got to buy issues because I, I get so much value out of it. I enjoy it so much. I'm sure you're the same. But somebody was saying you might have a little bit of a biased view of the product sure. and the optionality just because of how you interact and engage with it. Yeah. I mean, like the reality is that there's a long tail, like any type of media platform, right? Like you can look at Netflix con- consumption. You can look at Spotify streams, right? There's always going to be, you know, that long tail of, you know, users and consumption ac- across the board. And um, the value is not going to translate equally, you know, to everybody, right? There's a lot of people that are attached to Twitter um, kind of on the margin, right? That don't engage with it daily. Um, and so there aren't as many, like the value, like they monetize me really well, right? But they're not gonna monetize the, the long tail as effectively, which is the whole point of the strategy. Give people more reason to engage, get that MDAO conversion you know, higher, um, and then hopefully, you know, that translates into faster growth over time. But yeah, no, the bias, I think the bias is, is real, I mean, at the same time, you know, from my seat, I try to neutralize it um, in the within the process, right? So, like, you know, what is my key? What are my key thesis points? What are my fundamental expectations? What are my catalysts? What is my perception of value, right? And so, as long as I kind of have my true north, and I don't really feel like I'm deviating from that in, in in too many ways, then I feel like my bias is a little, you know, neutralized. But yeah, I mean, look, people like. We all grow up in this business and investing, right? And what's the first thing that you're taught? Like buy stocks and the companies that you know, right? That you enjoy, that you're a consumer of. And in that sense, um, you know, maybe everyone has biases, right? Um, But I think that's why it's important to have a thesis and really be able to be objective. Let let me let's leave the the tel, the I guess social network space sure. tech space right now and let's go to one of my favorite sp- spaces the media side right yeah I know you cover uh I'd say you've got the classic we're bullish on the future of media you know the Netflix the Roku and even Disney in there and we're really bearish on the the legacy media company so I'm thinking about Viacom and a- AMC networks right now so yeah. I guess my first question would be like. How cheap, when is Viacom a buy? You know, because I've looked at this company so many times over the years. It is so damn cheap. You know, it, it's as we're talking, it trades for about $30 per share, which that's about $35 billion enterprise value if I'm just eyeballing it correctly, which is, you know, it's eight times EBITDA maybe. Uh, and, like seven and a half, yeah. It's yeah, and, and they've got a lot of, you know, if they really wanted to juice, this is one thing I've thought about, like, if they really wanted to juice their EBITDA, they could just shut down Paramount Plus, license everything, you know, like, there are real assets in there, right? They've mm-hmm. got, they've got good brands, Nickelodeon, SpongeBob, Star Trek, like, there are real assets in there. It's yeah. very cheap. Viacom, I actually really like the uh, Bob, the Viacom CEO, but like, Viacom. when is it too cheap? Yeah, so, I mean, valuation is, for me, it's, it's kind of like the last thing that I do, right? So it's I don't start with valuation. I start um, I start with you know what is the top down secular trends of the business, and then from there, like where are the fundamentals of the business trending, and then you know what do I think the future uh, EBITDA, cash flow, whatever the key metric is that I think the stock's going to anchor off of. Like where do I think that's trending three years from now, and then then I kind of think about you know okay what's the right multiple, and then what is the multiple track and um, you know, just from a thematic standpoint, maybe just to kind of step step back for a second. I mean, uh, you know, we've we've been on both sides um, of these names historically. I've been long Discovery. Um, you know, we've not 
currently involved in discovery. Um, but, uh, you know, look, I think you have to realize that there's a massive shift that's been ongoing and it's continuing, right, in, in media. And that's a transition to streaming, which has um, implications for the economics of these media companies, right? So, you know, it weighs on affiliate fees, it weighs on advertising trends. And so if you look at, you know, in the case of Viacom, you know, in the time that this merger closed with CBS um, in their pitch book, you know, they said 500 million in annual cost energies, pro forma adjusted OIBITDA of 6.3 billion, right? And this year, they're going to probably do 4.6 billion in, in OIBITDA, and that's going lower. You know, free cash flow in 2019 was 1.24 billion. Uh, this year, it's going to be 1.1 billion, and it's going lower. And so um, in that sense, you know, I think you have your classic value trap, right? Where cheap gets cheaper because the fundamentals uh, continue to be challenged. Now, yes, they're growing streaming very rapidly and, you know, they have grown their subscriber base uh, for Paramount Plus and Pluto much faster than I initially anticipated. Granted, they've done a lot of other things in terms of striking distribution partnerships that help, you know, keep that number growing at a faster rate since then. Um, but the point here is, is that, you know, streaming is just a much less, much less profitable business compared to linear. So you're driving inferior unit economics through the model and 90% of your cash flow uh, is still coming from these legacy linear advertising and affiliate streams. Um, and in that sense, you know, um, like what's it worth, right? So, you know, Let's say they're going to do 3.5 billion in EBITDA in 24. The street's currently at like four and a half, five. Um, maybe you pay seven times on that, and you get you know an EV of 25 billion, less net debt of 14, 10 and a half equity, and you get a 16 dollars stock. You know, at eight times EBITDA, it's, it's 22. Um, and so I think the bulls want to be able to look at this and say, look, it's a sum of the parts. It's streaming. It's going quickly. Let's give it a you know, a per sub valuation on the part of Disney or Netflix. And I just don't think that's the right valuation approach. Um, hey, can, let me push back on a, a yeah. couple of different points here. And I don't, I don't have a position in Viacom right yeah, now. No, so fine. I, yeah, I, please, please. I, I'm just fascinated by it, but there's two, I guess my first pushback to you would be, okay, I hear you on that, but I look at something like Nexstar, which Nexstar is uh, the affiliates, right? So if you're, if you're living, you watch CBS on a, for people who watch, you know, on linear networks, CBS is actually owned by an affiliate. So Viacom owns the CBS overall network, but the affiliate runs the local news, all the programming and stuff. Nexar is an affiliate of CBS. Being an affiliate is a worse business because you have to pay CBS network a, mm -hmm. a big revenue share, basically, right? Nexar trades at seven or eight times EBITDA. Viacom trades at seven or eight times EBITDA, right? So mm -hmm. I've always looked at it and said, well, an affiliate is a worse business than the network. Obviously, Viacom isn't all CBS. You know, they've got a lot of other channels in there and Nexar's management is second to none. But I've always looked at it and said, relative value-wise, like affiliates going for eight times and you see credible players, you know, Tegna's getting bids from Apollo right now. Tegna's another affiliate. They're getting mm -hmm. bids from private equity players to take them out at like seven or eight times EBITDA right now. Uh, it, Gray just bought television stations for Meredith. Like seven or eight times EBITDA is how much affiliates are worth. If they're worth seven or eight times, isn't Viacom worth more than that would be my first pushback. Yeah, I mean, it within that framework, I mean, I think that is reasonable, right? I mean, if you look at historically, like what broadcast EBITDA multiples are, you know, high single digits, maybe 10 times at the high end, like eight to time, eight to 10 times, you know, cable is what, you know, four to six is usually, you know, the valuations that you see. For cable um, stocks? Or yeah, cable yes, no, not cable companies. The cable network. Yeah, I was about to say, you Sorry. take that back. Only yeah, all T trades for six. Charters and even 10 or 12. Blasphemy. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, no. Sorry. Yeah, no, not that. Um, but yeah, just cable networks. Um, and look, Viac what's Viacom worth? The, the cable nets, um, you know, post the merger closing, right? Like the stock went down. Granted, that was COVID, but you saw like Viacom value just disappear you know and we were short into that and we covered it like at the like 12 because it was just like just the valuation was just kind of absurd but yeah i mean look you can look at like relative valuation comps things like that i mean it, for me what it comes really comes down to is you know if if if, if i think that ebitda is going from four and a half billion a year to three and a half to two and a half to to maybe two right then this business isn't trading at seven to eight times, 
right? It's trading at already trading at, you know, 10 times. And so then you have to think about that re-rating that's going to continue to happen as estimates continue to go lower. And then it really just becomes a, a question of like, do you think that they can get to scale in streaming? And by my by scale, I mean like actual like profitability, right? Not just like sheer number of subscribers, like can they actually leverage their content costs to drive, you know, better unit economics to, to, to get to, you know, a larger EBITDA base, uh, that higher level of incrementals and flow through in the model years out. And, you know, I just, I have a really hard time getting there. And it's not just Viacom, right? I just think that streaming is just structurally a pretty terrible business, at least, you know, at these current prices, maybe down the road, you know, when if the bundle ever goes to zero, we're all paying like, you know, $35 for Netflix and $20 for Paramount Plus. I, I don't know, right? But the Unbundle is- to rebundle. Well, I, I've got some more Viacom questions, yeah, but-, but let me split it then. So I agree with you. People are learning quickly that streaming is harder. You have to get a lot of scale to justify the big uh, content spend, right? Well, you've got Disney and Netflix on, on your buy list. And, you know, they're different. Netflix is the number one winner. Disney has a brand and they've got other stuff. You know, the parks and everything are incredible businesses. But when I look at that and you say you've got to buy there, I mean, Netflix is way more expensive than Viacom. Now Netflix is growing and they've got a dominant position. But, you know, if you're starting to question how profitable streaming can be, you look at Netflix and you say, oh, well, there is a lot of competition and they're the competition is getting funded by hugely deep pockets and Amazon Prime or Apple TV or stuff, or it's getting funded by, you know, legacy cash flows that are going down, but that are there, that are real, that can fund a lot. And they do spend a lot on content in mm-hmm. a Viacom, a CBS, all this. So why are Netflix and Disney buys buys with all these questions while Viacom's itself? Yeah. Um, well, it comes down to a couple of things. First of all, we've been bearish and mostly wrong on Netflix for a really long time. I mean, I, actually, when you sent me your list, I was like, I'm pretty sure Andrew has been a Netflix fair. I didn't no, realize. No, I, yeah, no, definitely for a really long time. And I, and I still, you know, believe a lot of my initial viewpoints, right. And just in terms of valuation and market dynamics, you know, what's baked into the valuation. I don't see how, I don't believe that they're going to be able to get to like 350, 400, 500 million subscribers. I mean, still, right. And, and, but, you know, in the, in the spirit of like, you know, either, you know, wanting to be intellectually right or actually help people make money. Right. I'm very much so focused on helping people make money. And so in the shorter term, we pivoted to kind of the long side and it's not a high conviction long, um, but, you know, we're coming up against easier comparisons on subscriber trends. Their number one driver subscriber acquisition being content was ramping back up and the data we were tracking was getting a lot better. At the same time, everything else looked like absolute crap in our space. You know, advertising was going to fall out of bed. We we're coming up against, uh, you know, more difficult comparisons with the reopening trade. And so it just made sense that I thought that Netflix could start outperforming. And so that's why we pivoted. Um, and we'll see how long we stay there, right? Because we can go both ways. Um, but um, but the point is, like, it doesn't mean that I think that Netflix is is a great business, or that I think that um, you know there's a sustainable path here to significant free cash flow generation while maintaining their current rate of subscriber growth. Because I think the end market is ultimately not going to show up. Um, that being said, you know it's still a pure play in streaming, and if you just look at you know, at least the reported metrics, right? EBITDA is still growing. Earnings are still growing. You know, we can get into, you can talk about counting nuances and how they account for their content costs and all that stuff. It's probably not worth it to get into here. But, um, you know, the question is like in that scenario, right? Like I want to be long Netflix against short Viacom because Viacom is coming up against the product launches. The linear business is coming under pressure. Uh, as they comp these affiliate renewals at the same time, you know, we're comping against uh, the big increase in or the resurgence in linear advertising trends, right? That happened post COVID. And so that business is going to slow very quickly at the same time on rising content expenses, while Netflix business, at least on subs, is going to stabilize and potentially positively inflect. And in that scenario, I think that that, that, that works. And then for Disney, 
um, you know, we were big Disney bulls going into the Disney Plus launch, right? Like our view going into this from day one was that they're going to surprise the upside. And this was before on, on subs. And this was before anyone was like, everyone thought that, you know, no one could do it but Netflix and no one was going to subscribe to all these services, which ended up being, you know, not true. Um, and we did a lot of like survey work to kind of build our conviction and turn out to be right. Um, but you know, if there's one company out there in legacy media that has the the brands, the franchises, the ability to, you know, transition the base over to direct to consumer, it, it's Disney. Um, but still, like, it doesn't change the reality that you know ESPN is still, you know, a large percentage of their free cash flow, right? And so the question is, you know, do you believe they can get to scale in streaming, and they have this incredible free free cash flow that they can just leverage to reinvest into streaming, which is great. Um, and I think that, but, but I still think the jury is out whether or not it's going to actually be profitable for them and, and to, to what, you know, scale. What, so it's, what do you think Disney should do with ESPN? Uh, I think that they need to, I think, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm not sure I have a, a good crystal ball on this, but um, I'm not sure anybody does. Uh, frankly, they need to they need to keep it. I, I don't think they can sell it um, because it's so key to their direct, direct to consumer strategy, right? And I know people have thought about that, um, but uh, the sports is a huge driver of subscriber acquisition for these streaming services. Uh, and I do think that if they're smart about it and they can get the rights, that you know it could really help drive much higher levels of ARPU and better retention for their bundle of streaming services, which is Hulu, ESPN, DS, uh, Disney Plus uh, in the long term. But it's there's no there's no easy answer to what to do with with ESPN. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, I don't and, know if you have any thing, thoughts. It, it, no, I agree with you. It, it's tough because it, it is just a clunky product in its current form. But, you know, everybody's you hear all the time. Oh, well, they should just spin it off or sell it. Well, ESPN has crazy synergies with Disney's legacy uh, with, with Disney's legacy TV channels, right? The the Disney, yeah. You know, I mean, it's the, and, it's the largest part of the bundle, right? I and, mean, and, like, yeah. And if you sold, if you spun off or sold ESPN, well, you're killing yourself, right? Because Disney's got the most synergies with it. So if you spun off ESPN, all of your legacy affiliate fees goes down, and who's ever buying ESPN is going to have to price in. Well, I I lose a lot of affiliate fees and stuff. It just it just makes no sense from that standpoint. And in the future, though, you know, I, I do wonder if they regret having ESPN plus and Disney plus separate. I, I get that there's cost arguments and everything, but mm -hmm. having ESPN plus Disney plus, and then Hulu on the side, it, it's just a strange thing, but we, we, that's probably too long a conversation for now. Just want to circle back quickly to the Viacom piece, right? Cause there's mm -hmm. one other thing in the relative value. I already mentioned next star, but I, I think there's one other thing that a lot of legacy media investors hang their hats on. You know, when you look at Lionsgate, which probably sells for about $5 billion on the open market now, Viacom, Amazon, and that's Amazon buying MGM, right? Yep. Amazon's buying MGM for about $9 billion, I think the headline price is. Will the DOJ and FTC allow it? I don't know, but you know that is a market price. And you'll hear Lionsgate say, hey, if MGM's worth $9 billion, Lionsgate owns Stars, MGM owns Epics. Stars is be way better than Epics. MGM's library has some real classics in it, but Lionsgate library, way better than MGM's library when you look kind of all in for new stuff. Mm -hmm. Lionsgate TV production, better than MGM. So Lionsgate would say, well, our comp is $9 billion. We're worth more. Viacom would probably come at that and say, you guys think you're worth $9 billion. Like, we're 15 times better than you guys, and our EV is $35 billion. Why aren't we 50 70 $90 billion on the strategic value MGM says? So what would you say to people who kind of point at the MGM strategic value relative value comp yeah i mean you look at, look at like you know what kevin mayor and tom stags buying you know too and like the valuations that they're paying for some of these independent oh I, when he when they bought the reese weatherspoon business for like a billion dollars i can't tell you how many people sent that and they were like don't they own four shows in a relationship with reese weatherspoon we have actual billions of cash flow like what yeah no no absolutely look i, I library value is real right getting access to this ip it is of strategic value to a lot of these larger companies, but that that is the value, right? If you're an Amazon, if you're an Apple, if you're anybody, like you're not looking at Viacom and you're not saying you're 
you're not looking at Viacom CBS and saying like, oh my gosh, I want all these subscribers, right? You, you don't want to buy a streaming subscription business because you already have scale in your existing business, right? So for in the case of Amazon, all you really need is IP, right? And to maybe have it be exclusive to help drive, you know, better retention and help fuel prime video and, and meet all those strategic needs. Um, and I think what the market is telling us is that they should be, you know, an arms dealer, right? They should be do the Sony model. They should license their content out and generate, you know, very high levels of return and free cash flow off that IP and that there isn't really a path to tremendous value creation in, in streaming. Um, and maybe the stock will get cheap enough, right? Where somebody will come in and, you know, put in a bid, right? For that. So I, I can't really say that, you know, I, I can't disagree with your thesis, right? I mean, I think I think it makes sense. I just, you know, I, the question also just becomes like, you know, all the other relationships within the business, right? Like then you all of a sudden have to buy a broadcaster, right? With CBS, you know, would Amazon be able, would, they, would Amazon be able to buy CBS, right? Would that pass, you know, antitrust? Like, I don't um, think Amazon and MGM is going to. So I think Amazon and CBS, I mean, I think it should be allowed to, but I, I just, yeah, but, but, that's, I but, but that's the point, right? Like yeah. the thing with Viacom CBS is that it's not, it's not easy, right? If, if you want to buy it, there's a lot of issues, right? Which is, which is why, you know, we're seeing Warner Media merge with, you know, Discovery, right? Like it's not, and not Viacom, right? Because it, there is the broadcaster element here. So well, let me ask, you brought up Warner Media Discovery. Uh, very interesting one to me. I do have a position in Discovery, yeah. which it, like Altice has not been a great call, but, uh, you, you know, I think that merge is really interesting. I don't believe you have Discovery rated right now, but what do you think of Discovery Warner? Because I, I think the two arguments are the bear side is these are two legacy companies merging together. You put two two turds together and you get a turd, not a raisin, right? Get a turd, turd, turd. turd sandwich, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the bull case, which I kind of subscribe to, is you look at the asset strength and the IP value at Warner plus the kind of, yes, it's legacy bundle, but it, it's really nice background noise that gets lots of engagement is really good for retention with discovery. You merge those together. There's going to be synergies on the on the revenue side. You merge those together. I think you've got a great product. That's a, a real third scale player. That's kind of in the same league, not quite as Netflix or Disney, but it's really brushing up against them. And you look at the valuation, the combo, it's, it seems very cheap to me. How are you looking at it? Yeah. And you know, we've been, uh, I've actually always historically kind of had a long bias on, on discovery and and part of it's because I think they have really unique brands. I think, uh, you know, um, the unscripted space has better, you know, economics and return on, uh, you know, your content spend than scripted. It's just a little less competitive and they have, you know, their dominant player there. And I think people generally underappreciate like the strength of like HGTV and all these, yep. uh, you know, with and, and it might be the old thing where most, most, analysts most people on this podcast are male unfortunately and you know hgtv Disco even discovery, well, discovery channel TLC. i mean like yeah. all these things like they're, they're it's good you know it's it's you know it's and yeah it's like the pushback is like oh yeah why would i want to own honey boo boo right but like i mean the but the point dr is, pimple popper yeah yeah but 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 the, here's the point the point is that it still resonates and it has a large demographic right and so i think the worst thing that you can do as a media investor right is just assume that your tastes and preferences are the same as everybody else, right? In in the world, because it's it's just not true, right? And so you really have to take a little bit more of a balanced approach to, you know, how content performs. And even to add on it, not just your taste and preferences, but what everyone else says their taste and preferences is. Because you remember that old thing where like they used to rely on what people told them to report TV show viewership, and everyone said they watched the news and PBS and no one admitted to Jerry Springer. And then they got a little bit of digitalization and it was like the news and PBS were way lower than people were reporting, but Jerry Springer was way higher. Nobody everybody, admits it, but everybody kind of watches. Everybody has guilty pleasures, right? Yeah. Like everybody has their guilty pleasures that, you know, if you're at the bar talking with your buddies or whatever, you're not going to admit to watching, you know, whatever show or, you know, it's just, it's just where, what, what it is. I mean, I love like, you know, science-based, you know, all the alien shows, I can't get enough of it. You know what I mean? And so I love Discovery Plus. Like, I think it's, I think it's great. My wife, you know, she loves all the, the, the food network, all these things. So I think it's, I think it has very interesting brands that are a little bit more durable than people think. And because it's not scripted, you don't, you're not subject to the same type of like inflationary pressures on the production side. Yep. And so I do think they can, you know, leverage their content costs a little bit better. 
Um, but that being said, and it's still cable, right? Um, and so it's cable is generally viewed as, you know, secondary to broadcast uh, because, you know, broadcast commands premium CPMs on for that from that advertising side. It also has, you know, a larger reach and a larger percentage of time spent. You know, it's increasingly being carried by, you know, it's also being characterized increasingly more so by higher content costs, right? Especially with sports. Um, but, um, but yeah, no. Okay. So, so going back to your original question, um, you know, I, I think that it's still like, if we just look at it objectively, right. If I just showed you this business model, right. And the trends in this business, and I didn't tell you what the business was, right. You would look at it and say, all right, you know, advertising revenue in this last quarter was actually I have it right here. So advertising revenue this last quarter uh, was 991 million in the US. It's only up 5% year over year. It's down 3% from the third quarter of 19, right? So that is a large percentage of the economics and the cash flow of the business, which is in decline, right? And then you look at it from the affiliate side and you say, okay, well, that's still growing, right? But then you think about it in terms of like, what is the biggest problem with the, with the, the bundle, right? It's the rising price, viewership's down, increasingly becoming a worse value to the consumer, which is over time, in theory, driving accelerating churn on cord cutting, um, for cord cutting, accelerating cord cutting trends. Um, and so then you put this thing together with Warner and you know what they're going to do. They're going to do the playbook that they always do, right? They're going to use their larger scale to go back to Charter, go back to Comcast, go back to all the distributors. And they're going to say, we're this larger organization now. And they're going to use that to their advantage to try to get better rates. Right. And that's part of the revenue synergy. Then what is Comcast Charter going to do? They're going to go back and they're going to pass that through onto the consumer because they don't want to have they're not going to lose money on video. They're barely making any money on video, but they're not going to lose money on video. Right. And then you do that. And then all of a sudden you're like, I don't want to pay this anymore. Right. And then you cut the cord. And so the issue that I see with the merger is that, yes, it, you have all these short term benefits financially. It's very financially engineering driven, which I understand. But it actually over the long term, potentially exacerbates the problem, right? Which well, is the value proposition of the bundle. I, I, I agree with much of what you just said, but I think they would push back and say, yes, that's the short term. But what it really positions is for is the long term, right? Because you marry the HBO buzzy IP, right? There's nothing to draw people in like the Game of Thrones spinoff oh, yeah. that's coming out or the, the movies. HBO's got great stuff there. What they don't really have is that background stuff that stops retention you know david's asshole obviously exaggerating but he said i've heard from people yeah yeah, i've heard from people if we could marry the discovery library with our stuff our churn would go to zero because we could super serve so i i think what they're thinking is hey for the future we get the hbo stuff we get the warner movies and we marry that with this massive discovery library and boom our churn drops to zero and we're a truly skilled player do you buy into that or do you think no i think that makes sense i mean i i think that I mean, the, the the pushback or that that argument on churn is actually fa- is very fascinating, right? Um, because I think uh, it's 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 true, right? I mean, the whole how do you get churn down? You got to increase engagement and time spent with the service. I mean, it's not rocket science. Yeah. And so if you can get all this kind of white noise filler B rated like type content in with this other service, um, and you can increase time spent, that's great. I think the question becomes whether or not you actually merge the two services together. Right. And all the benefit comes from churn, or do you actually try to do like a bundling strategy? Right. Because like, like time, Disney does with ESPN yeah, Plus. Hulu, at the same Disney. time, you, you mentioned HBO, right? Killer brands, killer content. Um, continue to invest in, in, in that. Right. Um, you also have um, uh, the Warner Library that they're continuing to pump in there too. And, you know, the discovery content's a little bit different. Than that, right? Um, and so I do wonder what their strategy is going to be ultimately, because I feel like at least in the U.S. market, um, Discovery Plus needs Warner a little bit more than Warner needs Discovery Plus, right? And then international, it's kind of flipped. Um, so the term benefit could be there. You could have a scale player in streaming, sure. But again, then we're coming back to the same question, Andrew, that we were at before, right? Is is a scaled streaming player, right? Even if it gets to the size of Disney. Or sorry, Netflix. Is it going to be as profitable, right, as the businesses today in linear? And I think, as far as I see it, the answer is no. Because 
it's been the bundle's been over earning, right? Legacy media has been over earning for way too long. It's the culmination of decades of just contract renewals, consolidation, yep. right? launching new networks and trying to stuff everything down the, the necks of the cable industry, which they're starting to finally push back on. Um, and, you know, I, and I think that just, it's just going to be less profitable, which I'm not sure that translates into, you know, shareholder value. Ultimately, it's, it's going to be really interesting it, to see how it plays out. If you read the S4, I don't have the numbers behind uh, by me right now, but I, I believe Discovery was projecting for the next 10 years, basically flat EBITDA and cash flow and everything. And, you know, you think about this year is supposed to be, hey, our EBITDA is trial because we're investing $500 million into launching Discovery Plus and the streaming service. Like you would have thought just kind of annualizing that and hitting scale on Discovery Plus, EBITDA should recover. And it, it was, I think a lot of people were a little surprised that even these industry insiders are saying, hey, the, the legacy bundle is so challenged, even when we're when we're kind of annualizing this massive investment into tech and platform and everything in Discovery Plus, we're not going to be growing anymore. I think a lot of people were surprised there. Let me ask, I have one more question on Viacom, and then I want to let you just wrap everything up because I know we're running wrong because yeah, I mean, I've been yeah. having a blast at this. No, I mean, we can, I, mean but, I got yeah. time if you need it, but otherwise yeah. we can wrap it up. Everyone just needs. last question on Viacom. You know, I think a lot of bulls, and this is a place I haven't been able to do lots of work on because they don't have great numbers, but Pluto TV, which Viacom bought. It's this uh, ad-supported streaming service where you can watch a lot of things on it. Mm-hmm. Viacom bought it for $340 million in early 2019, had 12 million monthly active users. Today, uh, as of August, I, I don't have updated numbers. I'm looking at a tweet I put out a while ago. I'll, I'll put it out in the show notes if anybody wants it. As of August, 52 monthly active use, 52 million monthly active users, revenue doubling year over year, a little bit of pandemic benefit, but mainly because it's growing so quickly, over a billion in revenue. When I look at Pluto, you know, revenue is 15x in three years. They say it's a total home run acquisition. They paid three, 340 million. Mm-hmm. What's Pluto worth as a standalone business? How have you thought about that? Yeah, so a couple of things. So with, with Pluto, first of all, for you know any type of fast service, Avod service, like MAUs is just a worthless metric, right? It, it's totally, it's totally garbage. Um, I mean, it really comes down to like time spent and engagement. And all the third-party data that I've seen suggests that you know maybe they have a lot of MAUs, but the engagement is is, is pretty low, all things considered. Um, and then the other thing you have to ask yourself is. Like when you start to think about Viacom as a, some of the parts play, right? So what is Pluto worth? What is Paramount Plus worth? You have, you have to think about it. Like what is it? What is Par- what is Pluto worth without all like the Viacom content? Like if you don't yes, have exactly. yep. Comedy Central, if you don't have MTV, if you don't have the Salesforce, right? And the way that uh, Viacom has been selling advertising, uh, especially as this last upfront, is all through bundling, right? So the revenue growth rates look great. The revenue looks great. But they're really just channeling a lot of the linear ad sales into into Pluto because that's where they see that's what they think they need to draw, do to drive a multiple for the stock. And so, yes, it's growing much faster. A lot of it's not, you know, a lot of it's kind of manufactured in that way. And so that's why I think if you look at Pluto as a standalone business, it wouldn't be anywhere close, you know, to what it is right now. Um, and I. And yeah, so, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's an interesting asset. Uh, I don't know if the future is really going to be, you know, fast, it, you know, in, in this, in, in the current streaming um, form that it is. Um, maybe if they start putting more sports there, doing it that way, but then you have to think about, well, are they, they're not going to give up, you know, they're not going to start broadcasting NFL games through Pluto TV because that needs to go to Paramount Plus. Right. So it's just you follow the bouncing ball and you just don't get to a really exciting place at the end where Pluto is this, you know, diamond in the rough, incredibly undervalued asset um, because it's doing the job of, you know, recapturing a lot of those lost linear economics. Um, But ultimately, like at least in the data that I've seen, too, like the U.S. growth has slowed down. uh, Engagement levels aren't that great. so, you know, maybe I'm just too cynical, <laughs> but no, yeah, just, that, yeah. that makes total sense. That's me. That makes so, you know, just again, I haven't dug, dug into Pluto, but I, I know a lot of Viacom bulls who look at Pluto and say, look at those metrics. What would this be worth? Especially when SPACs were really hot. They were saying, what would this be worth of a SPAC? Yeah. Okay, I know. But, yeah. Uh, last question for you. And then I'll, I'll let you, what's your favorite long in the, the sector? You know, you cover TMT, you cover, you cover everything. What's your favorite right now? 
Yeah, right now, um, <laughs> it's so hard to find longs. Um, I mean, I think if we're talking like in the next, we're talking like in the next two to three months, I would say Google probably continues to work. If we're talking, you know, three years, um, I think that, um, you know, some of these issues with Roku resolve, right? And, um, you know, we're not incredibly, like we've flagged a lot of the issues with Roku and, and YouTube and we've taken it down, you know, on the position monitor as a result. Um, but I think that right now at 200, you're getting it for a price um, where you're not paying that much for the future growth option in the company. Um, and I still think that there's a, you know, a long tail and the long-term thesis is there um, for those that, you know, are patient can take advantage of this opportunity. But it's it's not, it's definitely one that's challenged, and the, but the, the stock reflects it. Roku is another one that has a lot of interesting strategic angles to it as well, but uh, probably another conversation for another one. We've run long because I've had so much fun with this. I had telecom stuff to ask you about, but we'll have to save it for the next yeah, time. Uh, let, let me just give you the last word here. Is there anything we mainly focused on social and legacy media, anything you wish we had covered harder or anything we didn't get to that you think we should have talked about? Um, I mean, we didn't talk about Fubo, but I mean, I've talked about, I'm on the tape a lot about Fubo. I mean, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's like, I Fubo just real quickly. So for those who don't know, Fubo is basically, hey, we're your legacy cable bundle, except you stream us and we've got a lot of sports too. It, it seems the most upside down business model I, I can possibly imagine. I I'm shocked that there are there are some people who've said, oh no, this is revolutionary. I, I'm just shocked that sophisticated investors say it. My issue is, and I'll tell you what my issue is. It's the same issue I have with people who short AM who are sell side who say, short AMC theaters or short, short FUBU. It's like, yes, I am 100% positive they're overvalued. You go try and find borrow and you go try and short a stock that can be up 200% overnight because no, Elon Musk t- tweeted yeah. about apes or something, you know? Yeah, no, I hear it. Yeah, I mean, shorting meme stocks has not been a profitable uh, endeavor to say the least, but um, eventually, you know, I like to think that it all comes comes full circle at the end of the day, which you're definitely seeing. Um, but yeah, no, no, Andrew, this is this has been excellent. You know, hopefully I added some value and uh, I appreciate the, the I, great questions and the, the ongoing debate. Hey, th- this was absolutely great. I ran long because I was having so much fun enjoying it. I, Andrew Friedman, I'm going to have his, the link to his Twitter profile in the show notes so people can follow him on there, hit him up. He's got a passionate following on there too. So uh, be sure to <laughs> meet him. But Andrew, this was great. We'll have to have you on maybe after next earnings to do another media recap or something. Sounds good, Andrew. Thanks. Thanks, man.